0: Good evening. Earlier this month in China, a man was sentenced to seven years in prison and fined over 20,000 pounds for selling Christian books. Last year in China, over 5,500 churches were destroyed, closed down or confiscated. Close to the home, the number of victims of modern slavery in Northern Ireland almost doubled in 2019 the authorities identified 91 victims, 16 of whom were children. These victims can be hidden in plain sight, often working in places like farms, car washes, nail bars, food production sites, domestic settings such as cleaning homes or providing childcare. Others are tragically the victims of sexual exploitation. And often these people are powerless They earn little or no money for the work they do, and they have minimal freedom of movement. They're under the control of their oppressors. And these are only the identified victims in Northern Ireland. There are likely many more unknown to the authorities. And this is a a prosperous nation, relatively prosperous, and it has a small population. If you look worldwide, it's estimated that there there are over 40 million, or around 40 million people who are trapped in modern slavery. And one in four of those are children. I was really quite shocked as I looked through some of those statistics. The world is full of pain and suffering. I'm sure you are fully aware of that. We, we hear it on the news all the time. We, we look around us. We see friends and family members going through incredible pain. It's all around us. Oppression is real. Maybe you don't feel the weight of that right now. Maybe it feels detached from your reality. Maybe you don't feel oppressed, but it is real. And that example I mentioned from China, well, actually hostility to Christianity, hostility towards Christians is growing in the West. In the not too distant future, it may be that our churches are the ones that are being closed down. It may be that that we are the ones being thrown into prison for our faith. Already, some are losing their jobs because of their Christian convictions. The reality of oppression may be a lot nearer than we anticipate. And the reality of oppression certainly wasn't lost on the writer of Ecclesiastes, this amazing and complex book we've been looking at over the past few weeks. Let me read from chapter 4. In chapter 4, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, writes these words. He says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both, is the one who has never been born who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun you see the teacher this individual credited with these words he recognizes that life under the sun is full of oppression pain and suffering and he's wrestling with that reality we've learned that that phrase life under the sun which occurs 28 times throughout this book means life without God, life in this material world, life under the horizon. And the teacher is trying to figure out that, you know, if this is all there is, if this is all that there is, this material world, if there is no God above the horizon, then what's it all about? What's the point of it all? It all seems so meaningless, so futile. He's trying to get his head around it. He's trying to use his logic to wrestle with that idea. If there's no God above the horizon, what's the point of it all? And it's a, it's a bleak book in many regards. Only very occasionally do we see him, if you like, punch through the clouds and, and recognize that there is a God in heaven. And at the beginning of this chapter, he looks around him and he sees people hurting in this material world. He sees tears rolling down their cheeks, he sees these people who, who are powerless in the face of their oppressors. And he sees that tragically they don't have any comfort. And his conclusion is that actually those who've died are better off than those who are living. Because they don't have to face up to the ugly reality of this world anymore. And in fact, he goes so far as to say something very dark. He says this, it's even better for those who haven't yet been born. Because they don't have to experience this evil world at all. They don't have to experience man's inhumanity to man. He almost wishes he had never been born, is the impression you get. And so in these verses, that the teacher despairs. He sees life under the sun, life in this material world, life without God as meaningless, as hopeless. There's no justice, he seems to conclude. And there never will be. There doesn't seem to be any hope of reform or transformation in the teacher's words here. It's a hopeless reaction. It's a despairing reaction. And it's certainly a reaction we can have and and we may be tempted to have towards oppression. We can throw our hands up in the air and say, what a terrible, messed up world we live in. I wish I was dead, quite frankly. I, I I, I wish I had never been born. Maybe we're not quite as extreme as that. Maybe we say, actually, uh, I just want to isolate myself from, from the cruel reality of life. I want to live in a, in a safe little bubble. And maybe we try and ignore the fact that there are victims of, of modern slavery in Northern Ireland. We hesitate to, to wipe the tears of the oppressed because we'd rather insulate ourselves from the reality of suffering. And I'm speaking to myself here more than anyone. That's a problem for the government to deal with. That's a problem for Stormont to deal with not for me, we tell ourselves. And that's, that's certainly a reaction we can have to oppression. It's a common reaction, I think. But as we'll see, it's not a godly reaction. It's not a Christ-like reaction. Moving on to verse 4, the teacher seems to become a little bit more practical. If you like, he puts on his sociologist's hat and he starts to try and analyze some of the reasons why oppression is so rampant in society. Academics love to do this. And look, there's certainly value in it. There's certainly value at looking at society and, and trying to understand why things are the way they are. God has given us minds. He's given us the capacity to reason and to work things out. And it's important that Christians are applying their minds to these things. There, are, there is value in it. Uh, and and his desire uh, seems to be to really get to grips with the way things are. So in verse 4 he writes, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The teacher recognises that this inhumanity, this oppression, the destructive nature of man, well, it stems from somewhere, and it stems from our envy of one another. Envy is this ugly thing, that this resentful longing for what someone else has. And, and our response is to do whatever it takes to get that thing we long for, even if that means trampling over the top of someone else in order to get there. You see, so often our envy is the thing that leads to oppression. It leads us to mistreat other people. Maybe it's that job title you've wanted, supervisor, manager, CFO, CEO, whatever it is. Uh, maybe you spread some gossip about a, a potential rival for that for that role, or you just talk them down a little bit to ensure that you have a kind of one-up on them. Maybe you run your business with a, with a ruthlessness because you see a competitor down the road and they seem to be doing just a little too well. And so you're a little bit extra ruthless to to ensure you remain competitive. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there, you tell yourself. You see, our envy leads to oppression. Moving on down the passage to verses 7 to 10, the teacher picks up on another socioeconomic reason for oppression. And it's one that is also strikingly modern, putting profit before people. And in these few verses, the teacher tells us a story. And it's a tragic tale, actually, of a self-made man. A man who, who seemed to be a workaholic. There was no end to his toil, we read. I'm sure you can think of people like that. People with an insatiable ambition and desire for, for career, for profit. Yet the tale is so tragic because the man was all alone. He had neither son nor brother. He'd worked himself into the ground, but it says his eyes were not content with his wealth. He'd prioritised the accumulation of wealth over relationships. And where had he found himself? He'd found himself isolated. He'd cared more about profit than he did about people. And now he found himself alone. And, and the lesson, one of the key lessons we can learn from this is when people are given less value than profit in our lives, we lay the groundwork not only for loneliness, but also for oppression. Human beings become dispensable. We don't feel we need them. And so, in all likelihood, this, this individual disregarded family and friendships because profit was his God. Human beings become dispensable. And the results are bad for everyone. They're bad for the man because he has all this wealth, but he has no one to share it with. How lonely to have wealth and nobody to share it with. And so the teacher concludes, meaningless, a miserable business. Jumping on down to to chapter five, we read further reasons for this evil of oppression. In verse eight of chapter five, the teacher writes, if you see the poor oppressed and If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over both of them are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits from the fields. And here the teacher identifies the problem of systematic corruption. He says oppression and the denial of justice and rights, well, it's something we should expect. We should expect it because of the layers of bureaucracy, one layer upon another, each of which is taken up, absorbed with its own self-interest. How relevant is that? How familiar does that analysis sound? In almost every organization, government, uh, businesses, wherever you look, people are primarily focused on themselves. They're primarily focused on their own self-interest. And often they're more concerned with those in authority over them than those under them. They're taken up with whether or not they've hit their targets, whether they'll keep their job. And often that means the people at the bottom suffer. Profit becomes concentrated in the hands of a small minority at the top. Doesn't that sound like a familiar analysis? And so systematic corruption is another reason why we can have oppression. Then in verses 10 to 11, the teacher writes these words. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to their owners except to feast their eyes on them? And here we see further reasons for oppression in society, consumerism, and the hoarding of wealth. People never have enough. Think about mobile phones. How many mobile phones have you had in the past ten years? How many cars have you had? How many new pairs of shoes? How many items of clothing have you bought? We have an insatiable appetite, don't we? An insatiable desire for for more, for new. And it's that kind of attitude, it's that kind of uh, desire that leads to the sweatshops we read about in India, in China. It leads to oppression, it leads to low wages. We have things we don't even need, we have things we don't even use. They're actually of no benefit, but we just like having them. We like to look at them and say, "Ah, oh, I own that. But it's so, so silly. And how, how amazing, how amazing is it that the teacher nails down all these different reasons for oppression. And they're just so relevant and they're so precise and they're so up to date. And so the teacher completes his analysis and he's identified valid and, and serious concerns. But actually... And this is the point here. It's quite a superficial analysis. He hasn't actually gone deep enough. And in fairness to him, in chapter 10, he revisits the issue of oppression and social justice. And this time he does go deeper. He 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 adopts a theological lens. And he points out in chapter 10, he says these words, As dead flies give perfume a bad smell, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. And his point is that at the root of an oppressive society are bad ideas. False ideologies. Ideologies, false ideologies are the things that turn a sweet fragrance into a foul-smelling odour. And there's many false ideologies in the world today. Think of things like critical theory, liberalism, humanism, Darwinism, communism, many more isms. Man's attempts to build systems and frameworks, societies without reference to God. And as we finish reading the analysis of the teacher, we do see that he's identified some key issues, and these are things that, as Christians, we should be concerned with. We should be seeking to address some of these things. But also, we're left feeling kind of discontent because the teacher gives loads of problems, he raises loads of problems, but he doesn't give us any solutions. He doesn't provide us a clear answer to how we cope with oppression and injustice without falling into despair and wishing we'd never been born. So we're left feeling pretty despondent. And the key thing to remember here is that the teacher is analyzing these things. He's analyzing these issues, shutting God out of the picture. He's looking at life under the sun, life below the horizon. And when we do that, when we examine issues like oppression and injustice suffering, and and we look at it in a closed system. We shut God out of the picture. Well, the only solutions we're left with are political solutions. All we're left with is politics. Half the American population are in mourning this week because the elections didn't go their way. They placed their hope in politics, and politics has failed them. It's a fragile thing to put your hope in politics. It'll always let you down in the end. And so all the teacher's left with is politics. And so he despairs. And the question that that comes to mind after reading this is, is is it possible then to live in a world of oppression, pain and suffering and not fall into the darkness of despair like the teacher does? Is that possible for us as Christians? And I think this is where it's absolutely critical to read Ecclesiastes canonically that's that's to take it in the context of of the whole canon of scripture because when we do that we learn that it is possible it is possible to to look at the world and see injustice and see suffering and experience oppression and injustice ourselves and not fall in not succumb to despair that is possible because when we read ecclesiastes in its biblical context we learn two truths two truths which counter despair of the teacher. The first is that God stands with us in the middle of our oppression and suffering and he enables us to persevere. And the second is that God assures us that ultimately there will be justice. The oppressor will face justice. So let's look at each truth briefly. Firstly, God stands with us in the middle of oppression and suffering and enables us to persevere. The teacher in Ecclesiastes, he he looked at suffering, he saw the tears of the oppressed, he saw their lack of comforter, and he concluded the situation is hopeless. It would have been better for that person had they never been born. But that's not true. That is not true. When we punch through the clouds, when we look above the horizon, we realize that is not true. The Bible over and over again tells us Christians are not alone in their suffering. They're not alone when they face oppression. I mean, there's so many passages and verses we could turn to 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 reassure ourselves of this fact. The Psalms are absolutely full of evidence of it. Psalm 9.9, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 34.18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But as I thought about this, the most powerful challenge in my mind to the to the hopeless despair of the teacher are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the eve of his execution, he spoke to his disciples and he knew oppression was coming both for him and for his followers. He knew they would be tempted to despair. He knew that. And so he comforts them. And and this is what he says to them. He tells them that although he's going away, they're not going to be alone in their suffering. In the face of their oppressors, he's going to send them a comforter. The very thing that the teacher in Ecclesiastes saw was missing, a comforter, the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to send you a comforter. This is what he says in John 14 to his disciples. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And then a few verses later, he says the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, this is the Comforter, the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, and will remind you of everything I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. How different is that to the words of the teacher? Most of these guys were going to die for their faith. They were going to experience intense oppression. Oppression of the darkest kind. Yet Jesus says to them, you're not alone. You are not alone. The spirit of Christ will be with you. He will give you peace. The apostle Paul understood the burn of oppression more than most. He was imprisoned multiple times, he was stoned, he was flogged, he was shipwrecked, he was hungry, he was sleepless, he was cold, he was naked, and ultimately he was executed. Yet in 2 Corinthians, he writes these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort." Who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What a challenge to the words of the teacher. And I love these words because not only does Paul say and guarantee from his own experience that we will be comforted in our suffering. But actually we are then empowered by God to comfort others as they face their affliction and suffering. And as the teacher looked on, he, he observed that these people oppressed had no comforter. And he recoiled at that fact. Well, here's the call for us as Christians to be the comforter that the teacher failed to be. We are called to comfort the oppressed. We are called to comfort other believers going through loss and hardship, facing oppression and injustice. We are called to comfort them. And we're empowered to do that by the comfort we receive from God. So, so when we observe suffering in Belfast, when we when we hear of things like modern slavery occurring in Belfast, when we hear of things like uh, like this, this man in China going to prison for selling Christian books, we shouldn't isolate ourselves from their suffering. The godly response, the Christ-like response is to run towards those in need. I think it's clear that that Paul and the other apostles would would disagree with the analysis of the teacher. They would recognize that, that of course we can have comfort in our sufferings. We don't have to face them alone and we can comfort others. And as a result, we can persevere. We don't need to despair. But there's another reason why we can keep going. There's a second reason why the teacher's analysis of oppression is too shallow. And it's this, God assures us that one day there will be ultimate justice. One of the primary reasons the teacher despairs here is he sees this oppression taking place and he doesn't seem to see any hope of justice. But he's neglecting the fact that God will bring ultimate justice. I mean, I'm a little confused why the teacher doesn't pick up on this here because just in chapter three, but previously, he, he had for a moment punched through the clouds, if you, liked. He, he, if you like, he, he looked above the horizon. Uh, and at that moment, he'd said to himself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. But so quickly, he slipped back into this materialistic mindset as he looks at oppression and suffering. He needs to look back over the horizon once more, above the horizon, because the reality of God's justice, well, it's it's something that can give us hope in the midst of our suffering. Over and over again, God's word is clear that oppression will meet its end. This broken, unjust world, it's not going to go on forever. This is how our Lord Jesus Christ launched his earthly ministry. With these words from Isaiah 61, listen to this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I love that. He came to set the oppressed free. He came with good news. And, and fundamentally, this good news was that he was going to deal with the problem behind every evil and every injustice and every oppression in the world, the problem of sin. That's the heart of the problem. The teacher didn't seem to get there. The heart of the problem is sin, the sin of every man's heart, the sin of every woman's heart. And the Lord Jesus Christ was going to deliver people from the guilt and power of sin. And at the cross, all oppression, all evil, all injustice was punished in Christ. He took responsibility for it. And at the cross, God demonstrated how much he hates oppression, how much he hates evil, how much he hates sin, and that it will never go unpunished. Jesus didn't read the next bit of Isaiah 61. It talks about a day of vengeance, a day when God will judge all the sin, of those who have not trusted Christ. And God makes clear sin will be punished. And either we can accept Christ crucified as our substitute, or we can choose to bear God's justice ourselves. Now that is a foolish thing to do. That is a terrifying thing, to face God's justice ourselves. One way or another, justice will be done. And when we look at this messed up world, I'll tell you what, we realize that's a very good thing. And I'm excited to talk about this this final point. Then comes the day, uh, the day of all days when when sin has been dealt with and when God creates a, a new heaven and a new earth, a day when, as we read in Revelation, when the dwelling place of God is with man. He he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. How's that for comfort? You'll never feel alone on that day. If only the teacher in Ecclesiastes had looked beyond the clouds. What hope there is in the face of oppression and suffering? Rather than wishing we were dead, rather than wishing that we we hadn't even existed, death itself won't even exist anymore. Crying will be a distant memory. Loneliness will be gone forever. I long for that day. I long for that day. And so we're finished. If you live life like there's no God above the horizon, what will happen is you'll end up looking like the teacher in Ecclesiastes. You'll despair in the face of oppression and suffering and you'll place all your hope in something as fickle as politics. But when you punch through the clouds, when you live in the reality of God's existence, When you place your confidence in his word, you'll understand how to live a life full of hope. No matter how evil and oppressive things get, you will know his comfort in the middle of your suffering. And you'll be fully assured of his ultimate justice as you look joyfully ahead to the new heaven and the new earth, that day when death shall be no more. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of oppression, we need not despair like the teacher did in Ecclesiastes. Father, we look through the clouds, we look above the horizon and choose to live in the reality of your existence. We place our confidence in your goodness and the promises of your word. Father, we praise you that at the cross, justice has been done as Christ took responsibility for evil and injustice and bore the punishment we deserve. Father, we realize that no sin, no evil will ever go unpunished. Justice will always be done. And in this, Father, we rejoice. And thank you, Father, that Jesus is alive. He triumphed over death. And one day we're going to see him face to face in the new creation. Until that day, Lord, please keep us going. Keep us looking to Jesus. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.